Hello everyone, and welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. I'm your host, Matt Scrivens, and this week on the show, we are excited to have Carrie Houston, founder of 321 Growth Academy. 321 Growth Academy specializes in helping founders and teams develop the skills, tools, and strategies they need to grow their companies faster. As you will hear, Carrie has a wealth of marketing, sales, and entrepreneurial experience that comes out in droves during our conversation. If you're looking to accelerate the growth of your company, you need to check out 321, and registration is now open for their lean sales and growth marketing courses this fall. Good Lawyer went through this program, and honestly, we cannot say enough good things about Carrie or the team at 321, so if you're serious about growing your business, make sure to check them out. On a final note, before we jump into today's conversation, make sure you're keeping up to date on all things Good Lawyer by subscribing to our newsletter, which is a weekly summary of stories relevant to small business owners in Canada, and also includes links to both our recent Good Lawyer webinars and our latest promotions. To sign up, simply visit our website at goodlawyer.ca and enter your email address in the sign-up form. It's really that simple, and you're guaranteed to get entertaining and useful news, which, come on, who can use a little bit more of that, am I right? Alright, that's it for me. Please enjoy our conversation with the incredibly talented and driven Carrie Houston. Carrie, welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you. The pleasure is all ours. I know you're a busy person, so we do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to come on. But uh, yeah, how's everything going for you? I know it's been a, a hectic summer and uh, I think the curveballs just don't stop You've been coming. <laughs> unusually busy, I think, compared to most. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're fortunate to be one of those companies where the current situation creates new opportunities. So, you know, as I was, as I have mentioned to many friends, I'm not baking sourdough and learning Italian. I'm heads down growing the companies, but it's a good problem to have right now for sure. Well, you know what, why don't we just start right there then. You are the founder of 321 Growth Academy. So why don't you just give us a bit of a background on uh, how that organization came to be and what, you, what need you saw that triggered uh, you to start this company? Yeah, great question. Well, I've, you know, I've been in the startup space for a long time. And when I was between startups, so to speak, I was doing a bit of advisory work, working one-on-one with a few companies. And I realized that, you know, I only had so much time and I could only help a few companies at a time and was really keen to make a bigger impact and, and frankly, to disrupt the advisory space a little bit. You know, there was I was observing a lot of, um, you know, subpar services being offered by uh, people that didn't necessarily, in my opinion, have the right experience and skills. So I took a look at what some of the top accelerators were doing, like Y Combinator and Techstars, and I thought there was an interesting opportunity to adapt that model to the acquisition of growth skills. So instead of taking an MVP or taking a founder from an idea to an MVP, really helping them get from MVP to revenue and then to scaling revenue and, and beyond. And, you know, my, my observation of the problem is, you know, a lot of, a lot of founders and, and their team members, they don't know what they don't know. Like for, for many of them, they're, you know, this is their first time around or they're, you know, they've only gone through one or two startup experiences and they, you know, they can really waste a lot of time and a lot of money kind of flailing and struggling and trying to figure it out. So our goal at 321 is really, how do we help those founders and their teams really accelerate the time that it takes them to learn those skills so that they can apply them quick? And we believe that that increases the chance of them being successful, which is, I think, good for 
you know, good for our ecosystem, good for our province, good for our community. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, you touch on a really interesting thing in terms of sort of where the company is and, and how you fit into the picture. So maybe we could just dial into that. Cause I mean, we went through, went through three, two, one growth Academy ourselves with good lawyer. Um, and we were definitely on the earlier side of the companies, but still getting a lot of those foundations early on has absolutely, you know, increased our ability to succeed down the road. But where's your like ideal customer? I learned that from you, Carrie, ICP. <laughs> uh, ICP. What's your ICP? You know, where's the company that when they should be coming to three, two, one. Yeah, good question. I don't, I don't think we have one. I don't think we have mm-hmm. one archetype of customer, but I would say there's a couple. So on the one hand, there'll be the companies like Good Lawyer. So, you know, founders, co-founders and team members of an early stage company. So have an MVP part of the way down the path, but it's early days. And so you want to address that, you know, I don't know what I don't know problem. So getting some early guidance around what does good sales and marketing look like and how do we minimize the obstacles that we might hit in the road by being forewarned and forearmed and how do we incorporate that learning to help us get to that next step sooner we also we also see um, a lot of our alumni are companies that are a little bit farther along so surprising to us that we we were starting to see um, you know people registering for courses that had sales and marketing experience that their companies were a little bit farther along and in in those cases sometimes it's a case of they see an opportunity that they're not sure how they can go get there from where they are. Mm-hmm. In other cases, they're really seeing some challenges. So, you know, they're, they're far along, they've got some experience to draw on, but they're not necessarily able to solve kind of the sales friction or the marketing challenges that they're seeing with right. their experience. So just looking for an opportunity to kind of take a fresh look at the business and, and uh, see if they can turn, you know, uh, turn, turn it around or address those challenges. So that's really interesting that you're saying you're finding a bit more experienced people coming to seek out some help and guidance and that, you know, having dabbled in this area myself, that doesn't surprise me at all. And I'm guessing like sales and marketing uh, from at least what I can tell is a fast moving discipline regardless. And I think now that you throw COVID on top of that, I'm guessing that a lot of people's weaknesses may have been exposed in the last six months or so. Is that, are you seeing trends like that in, in your company at the moment? Exactly, Matt. I think, you know, we see, um, you know, we, we did some office hours earlier this year, just as a give to the community and, and just to try to help some founders through this. So even if they didn't have a prior relationship, us, we're happy to help. There's lots of other great organizations like Platform and Startup Edmonton doing the same, but you know we're definitely seeing that. We're seeing you know in a frothy market where you know it's buoyant. There's lots of buyers. There's lots of money. Yeah. Um, it kind of masks some of the weaknesses. But when right. things get tough, only the best survive. And so I think that's where a lot of founders where you know might be seeing friction now or you know lack of progress now that they we're not experiencing before when the market conditions were really different. Right. Right. I was wondering, um, have you seen any interesting sales tactics emerge in the last, like during, since COVID has hit, like just brand new stuff that we haven't seen before. I don't know about brand new. I think COVID is certainly brand new for all of us, but I think I've definitely seen some good and some bad, you know, I think one of the challenges when we face this massive market shift is that we, we begin to focus on our own needs. And we get, sometimes if our pipeline is a bit thin, we can get a bit desperate. 
And so I've seen in some cases, you know, if you just think of your own inbox, I have a folder in my email application that's bad sales emails. And I just regularly drag them over there to remind myself of what not to do down the road. But I love that. there's yeah. been, there's been some new joins to that folder uh, <laughs> since March for sure. Um, you know, I think sometimes people are perhaps more aggressive than they might've otherwise been because they're quite desperate. Like they really need a deal. They really need the revenue without recognizing that, you know, revealing that complete lack of empathy for the situation that your buyer may find themselves in can really backfire. I think the things that I've seen work best are the things, the strategies where it's actually less about sales. Because, you know, if I'm in a position to buy right now, despite COVID, then you can engage with me and and the same as the same as it was before. But if I am not able to do that, whether that's personal circumstances, maybe I'm ill, maybe I have I'm homes. I'm learning grade four again for the second time. Um, maybe I'm taking care of, you know, family members that are at risk. Um, or, you know, my boss just got let go or a company's in trouble. You know, I think sometimes the things that I've seen that work the best is when we take a step back from our own needs and stop worrying so much about closing this one deal and worry about how do we authentically engage with those prospects to reveal who we are, what we stand for, how we think we can help them and just be honest and, you know, I think some salespeople would say that's bad practice, but I, I tell you what, like it's really worked for us. Totally. And, and, you know, building that brand through empathy as opposed yep. to hard sales, you know, I think that was something that good lawyers certainly tried to lean into during the pandemic. And, you know, we've benefited from that from a brand perspective without question. Um, but it just felt right. You know, like people are hurting. You're in a position to help. You know, you guys did it with, with office hours, which is amazing. And it just felt right. And I think, you know, that's sort of the world that we're living in these days is, you know, leaning into a bit more purpose, a bit more giving back and not just purely looking at the bottom line is serving companies really well. And I think, you know, I think sometimes, you know, when you asked earlier about examples, um, you know, the, the other thing that I've seen really backfire is for people that they're trying to do a bait and switch that their offer to the community, their offer to their you know, their prospects and customers isn't authentic. And it's mm -hmm. obviously just a precursor to a sales conversation. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think again, you know, have respect for your buyers. They're smart. You know, the, the idea that you are smarter than the rest of the market is probably flawed thinking. And uh, it's not easy to pull one over on the market. They have, yeah. full, they have full knowledge. So I think if you're going to do something like a community initiative or a give back or just a, you know, just a check in with your prospects and customers to see how they're doing, it really has to come from a place of, of like real authenticity. Otherwise, they'll smell it for what it is. Well, and to your point, you hit the nail on the head there where I've experienced a few of those calls myself and emails and, and calls in particular. I, I, there was a couple that are jumping out at me now that you've triggered that, that I could not get on the line in any meaningful way for six months. Then all of a sudden they're my best friend. And, and to your point, like, you know, I know that it's like, oh, don't, there's a, a bit of uh, a cat and mouse game maybe of not showing your full hand, but to your point, you're right. It, and it's not that I'm particularly intelligent. It's pretty obvious that this is not, you know, genuine, you know? And so uh, I, I totally agree with you that empathetic and real connection, especially in these tough times seems to be one of like probably your best play that you can make, but just getting back to this, it sounds like you have, quite a bit of entrepreneurial experience even before 321 Growth Academy. Uh, maybe take us through just a bit of your journey there. And then also, was it a, a tough 
decision to go out on your own? Was that one of those gut check moments where you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do this and have all the nerves? Or were, was it something fairly natural that developed out of all of your previous experience? Oh, man. Carrie's cool, cool as a cucumber. <laughs> I, well, I would say, um, you know, I, I've kind of been in the startup space for a long time. You know, I, you know, I took my MBA thinking that I was going to go into big tech in Toronto mm. But I didn't learn anything about startups, you know, great education, but that is not where I learned anything about startups or sales or marketing or growth or product. Um, but, but I did fall in love with tech. I had a summer job when I was in university working in an IT department and, that, and in a big company. And I'm not a big company gal, but that's where I really started to, to see how technology was actually very central to if their success. If you with an IT department, you know you're made for it, especially right? at a big company. Yeah. I was like nerding out on, uh, in this IT Amazing. department, but I was not interested in being in an IT department in a little company or in a big company rather. I was really, you know, I kind of thought where, where is there a more entrepreneurial opportunity to get involved with tech? And it took, for me, it took taking my MBA to open the door. Like I had, an, I had a business undergrad degree. I was not going to go be a product manager in a tech company with a business degree at that time. And I didn't want to go back and take four years of engineering. So I took my MBA and used that to get into my first tech gig and then have worked in, you know, kind of six startups, one, you know, one big tech company, six startups. And I founded uh, two companies. So over the last 25, yikes, 30 years maybe. Um, so it's been a long road. Wow. So, so this isn't your first uh, foray into founding your own company? No. Oh, and, wow. You know, and, and to your earlier question, Matt, so did I have any hesitation? No. <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, everywhere I go, uh, you know, I feel like I could start three companies a month. Like, it's like, you know, you, you, when, you, when you look at the market with the lens of, is there a problem there worth solving? Is it big enough that I can create something? And is the market screaming out for something better and different? And when you hear yes, 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 then it's like, okay, then it becomes, am I the one to start it? Or is somebody else better served to, you know, to tackle that? So I, I just want you to know that's one of the most encouraging things I've heard in a while. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so great. That's so great that you see someone with, that can see a problem and know how to take that and make it into a business. I think that's just so encouraging because I know that that's one of the biggest um, uh, you know, obstacles for a lot of people is taking that step. And obviously you have a ton of experience, which I, I, we can't discount that being said, you know, that's, uh, that's very cool to hear that you can get to that point where you feel like you could start up, you know, whatever company you feel like at any given time. Well, and I, and I would look at it like everybody has a first time, Sure. right? Like Mark Zuckerberg was not Mark Zuckerberg when he started Facebook. Right. And so everybody's got to be Mark Zuckerberg when he was in university. And so how, how do we kind of, how do we kind of, you know, you know, at simultaneously kind of inspire entrepreneurs to say, you know, first, is there an opportunity worth pursuing? And then am I the one to do it? And if yes, then go. But, but assuming it's a go, like, why not? Why not you? Why not me? That's like, great. There's not, there's not somebody else who's always better and smarter. There's always opportunity for disruption. Right. I do think that a lot of entrepreneurs kind of pursue entrepreneurship because it's, it's very hot and sexy right now. Right. And they don't kind of do that hard work up front to think about, is this an opportunity worth pursuing? Is it a good idea? Is it big right. enough that I can make a business out of? And am I the one who's going to be able to win at it? I think those are important questions and qualifiers to the, you know, anybody can be an entrepreneur. Right. Well, and, and you know, Carrie, I think when we met you guys, you know, that's like going back at least a year and a half, two years ago now, um, we had thought about it a lot, but we also hadn't asked all the right questions and we hadn't done enough like actual on the ground validating. And 
certainly that was one of the big pieces that we were able to implement immediately from uh, a lot of the three, two, one work, uh, and just reading books, you know, like learning how to do this, um, was, yeah, you got to ask your customers, you got to ask the questions, you got to validate that this is actually something that people care about and yeah. are willing to spend money on. And um, I often, I often, whenever I have an idea, I always have an idea and I kind of craft out what I think that opportunity looks like. And then I go try to kill it. What are all of the reasons why it's not going to work? Because if there's reasons, I want to be the one to find them. I don't want to find them a year from now once I've started a company and hired people. How do I be the one to identify every way that this is going to go, go wrong? Totally. And, and I can say from my own experience, um, I did not do that on my first startup <laughs> and instead hired uh, a developer who worked out of our apartment for almost a year and built a whole product before we started asking people. So, um, you know, we've twist and turned from there. Thankfully, we had a pretty big problem we were trying to address, but yeah, definitely know what you mean. And I would yeah. never, ever do that again. Yeah, it only takes the once, Brett. <laughs> so, you know, just on that note, what was your first company? Well, I, I would say like the first company I started was a services company. I had a great business partner, um, but it was a different model, right? It was a different time. And running mm -hmm. a services company is a very different animal than running a product company. Totally. Um, because there it's really about, you know, it's the pyramid scheme. You got to hire a bunch of people <laughs> that you can, you know, you can, you can sell enough to keep them busy, keep them at a decent rate of utilization. Sounds have like a, a law firm. <laughs> exactly. It is like a law firm. Have good margin and that's how you make money. So yeah, yeah. my first company was, I would say, relatively, um, you know, much less complex than having a product company. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've been in a number of, you know, my first job in a tech company was as a product manager. Wow. And, that and was your first job. It's my first job. Wow, and I, that's crazy. And it was interesting because I was hired into the a marketing team uh, and the director of marketing of this company um, was in a big bun fight with the VP of marketing and he really liked that I had an MBA and I was highly analytical and the VP of marketing, when I interviewed with him told me, there's no way you're getting this job because you're not a good fit and you're not technical enough. Mm -hmm. And um, my interview was with six other technical product managers and engineers oh, wow. yeah. and they asked me to, you know, kind of take apart my computer and install a graphics board and, and come back with the suggested improvements to the product and wow. handed me a Phillips screwdriver with the expectation that I probably wasn't going to be able to do it. So I spent the weekend proving him wrong and then I got the job, but, wow. but it was kind of like a fun, it was an, for me, it wasn't intimidating and I, I was probably too stupid at the time to be intimidated by the scenario, but, but it was a great, it was a great learning ground for, um, you know, for kind of seeing how tech companies operate and yeah, getting your hands dirty. No kidding. Yeah. So actually you're leading into the question that I had. You've touched on the answer there a little bit, but as a non-technical person who's come into, it sounds like a majority of tech companies, how did you navigate that? Is that something that, did you have to learn those skills? Because I think, uh, again, this is another big barrier for, I think, a lot of people, right? Is that they may have an idea or anything and they can't even build a website, let alone a sophisticated product uh, on any sort of technical level. So did you learn as you go or was it something that you didn't, you just needed to know enough to be able to speak to the engineers or how did, how did you navigate that, uh, that situation? That's a great question. I think I'll go on a bit of a rant, a small <laughs> rant, a short rant. I think, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, from when I, from the time when I started out as a product manager, I think, you know, with the, with the growth of kind of the lean startup movement and this idea of agile development, I think those are all amazing developments to de-risk companies and de-risk products. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I feel like we leave the product only 
and I wouldn't say take it away from the technical people, but we leave it only in the hands of the technical people. And so they can build something elegant. But you know what I'm good at? I'm good at finding the money. I'm good at finding out where the opportunity is. And most of those folks can't do what I do. And so it's not a case of how do I be technical or how do they understand the opportunity? It's about how do we kind of get aligned around what are we trying to accomplish here and how are we going to get there? What do you need to do and what do I need to do? And how do we build this, you know, relationship of trust where we can have a great interaction on our journey to building a great product that makes money. But, but I was always successful at kind of rallying the troops and convincing them that I knew where we had to go to make money. And they were, they had confidence in that and, they, and I trusted them to execute well so that we would end up on in that destination with something that was saleable and would meet the needs of the market. Well, and I think even just the way you describe that is so perfectly carried. Like you are talking about the thing that matters. Where's the money? You know, not like I know the right person to create the part. Like you just get right to the point. I know how to get the money. You don't build the product and let me find the money. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. I think just that way of explaining it to, you know, a mostly engineering group, which I think most people can agree, it can be a little bit difficult to get over the line on things. That is such a, a strong way to put it. It's so simple. And, you know, when I was a product manager, it, much to the chagrin of the VP of marketing that I worked for, I <laughs> yeah. sat in engineering. I'm like, I'm not oh, wow. on the marketing team. I'm on the engineering team. Good for you. And so I want to sit with my people. I want to, I want to hear the conversation. So when they're saying, oh, we're going to go this direction with the database, I'd like pop up and be like, that's not the right idea. And, <laughs> and kind of like be in the thick of it. And, and I think there's a lot that, that kind of non-tech uh, product marketing sales people can do to build better bridges you know, to the tech team. Because without, it's the bridge that matters. It doesn't matter if you have great engineering without the rest of it. It doesn't matter if you have great sales or marketing without the rest of it. So it's kind of... I think I'm a natural kind of silo buster kind of person. And you need that kind of cross-functional thinking when well, you're trying to rally the troops. Well, it sounds like you almost independently came across, came upon scrum methodology. Like that's how, you know, the textbook now almost says to build effective teams is exactly that where you have all kind of elements sitting together. So that's, uh, that's kind of cool that, that, well, yeah. that that's a realization you came to. You need that cross pollination and the sales is the best lens to the customer, right? Like, Product is in the office building. They're not typically or certainly not as frequently talking to the actual users. So if you don't have that lens or that bridge, you know, you're a bit going to be lost. If you work for me and you're a product person, you better not be in the office all the time. I had a guy, I had a guy that worked for me in, in one of the companies I was at. He was kind of the head of uh, head of one of our products. And, and I finally told him on a Friday afternoon, I said, if you come in on Monday, you're fired. And he kind of, he kind of laughed, thought that was really funny. And, and I said, no, really, if you're not at it, like I've been taught, we've been talking about it. You've been here for months. You have not spent any material time back in the day when we could do that. He hasn't spent any material time out in the field talking to customers. And I'm like, right. if I, if I see you on Monday, you're out. Yeah. And he did not show up on Monday and he was wow. a very successful guy, but he kind of, you know, but he was just, you know, trying to be the awesome product leader without that market intel. And, and I would say good sales. Absolutely. It's out in the field. Good marketing. Absolutely. They are out in the field talking to customers and validating what they're hearing back from sales and product. Good product is out in the field. Everything has got to be out, you know, externally facing. Like my, for me, the kiss of death of a startup is when everybody's focusing inside what's happening inside the room. That's the, that's the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. Great answer. 
So, uh, and just, just kind of touching on something that you said in the last question before we'll move on here, but you said you tried to kill the idea yourself before anyone else has the opportunity. Do you have any methodology around that? Or do you like, do you do a, like a lean canvas or anything like that? Or do you, do you just sort of let that idea flow and, and kick it around in your brain before and, and see if you can punch holes in it yourself? Yeah, a great question. I think, you know, we we do what we espouse in our courses. So right. if I if I'm going to if I have an idea, I would, you know, I might start with the lean canvas, I might progress to a BMC and then I get out. Right. I kind of, you know, I I start listing like what are all the risks, what are all the reasons that this is going to, you know, what are all the reasons why I'm the right person to start this company and why it's going to win? And then I turn the page over. What are all the reasons why this is a this is a dog of an idea and this it's never going to work? And what are all the big risks that are we can't overcome? And what are the reasons why I'm not the right person? And then I get out of the office and start validating and talk to you know 20, 40, 50 people. And I have killed a lot of ideas that I, you know, if you would have asked me, I, I would have come home and said, hey, to my husband, let's, you know, let's let's go mortgage the house and start this new company. But I'm always the one to get kind of make sure that we've de-risked that. Right. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, it's, and you're, you, it seems like it's a theme here that getting out of the office, getting it in front of people, whether that be an idea or the product it, itself is super critical, right? So no, that's, uh, that's great. Yeah. Now, and, and just circling back to 321 Growth Academy. So how do you guys help the, the clients that they come? Like you, obviously you offer online courses. Is that the primary method or how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, that's our primary thing. Um, and again, it, it, it goes back to our mission. Like we want to help. Um, I was talking to somebody earlier today and I said, we don't want to help 10 companies. We want to help mm-hmm. thousands of companies. So, you know, we've already worked with 205 or 200 and something companies already. Um, but I want that to be 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, because I think that's how we have really big impact. And the way that we get that kind of reach is through having cohort classes. So before COVID, we would have offered our courses in person, but we're starting to see, you know, interesting demand outside of Calgary and we want to support that. We want to support founders and their teams that live outside of our local region. And we also have a constraint of, um, you know, of not being able to safely be in front of our participants. Right. Right. The other side of it, though, is, you know, we, we also like this pivot was not just a COVID pivot. It was also, you know, we've worked with hundreds of founders and, and team members and we you know, we consistently hear how their load is heavy and they need some flexibility in how they participate. And so moving our courses online gives them a chance to kind of go through those key concepts on their own time. But it's not like, it's not a passive experience where they go and, you know, watch some videos and they're done. They, you know, they get to work. We give, you know, some worksheets that guide them through applying what they're learning in their business. And then we regroup because a lot of the value is in the cohort experience. So now the Mm -hmm. cohort experience is on Zoom. But we, you know, we keep people accountable. We hold their feet to the fire to keep moving forward, you know, get people to share what they're doing, brainstorm solutions to challenges and let people kind of learn from each other. And we have those courses in sales, in marketing, in people. And because we think those are kind of, you know, three of the key pillars that drive growth. Well, and now it's really, really scalable. Now it's really scalable. What about that? Yeah. So have you been seeing a change in the type of company that's come to you since COVID's hit or is that remain the same? Well, I, well, I would say, because we did our homework, we had a pretty good hypothesis as to who our target customer was. And so I would say that hypothesis has definitely proven to be true. So we can really help, you know, those early stage founders that want to avoid the problems and the later stage founders that are starting to hit the gas and seeing some challenges where we were surprised was 
seeing larger companies and companies that were not at all technology companies. So services companies, agencies, consulting firms, you know, oil and gas services firms. And the interesting thing has been the challenge, like for us to learn that their challenges are really the same, that, you know, the, the founder and team growth challenges are really similar. The way that they solve them might be different. The way that they kind of implement their tactics might be different, but some of the challenges, a lot of the challenges are the same. And so we started to see kind of this interesting diversity um, in, you know, in our cohorts. The other thing is, you know, we're, you know, we're seeing quite a bit of um, diversity of business model. Um, you know, we have a, a tremendous depth of experience in B2B and, you know, we get some B2C in every cohort, but we're also seeing a rise in social enterprise, which I think is reflected across the economy overall. Um, and so can, again, can you just define social enterprise just in case someone doesn't uh, fully understand that concept? Yeah. So social enterprise is enterprise. It is a money-making venture, but it's, it's one that has a social mission that is equally important or partially important, you know, um, in addition to the financial goals of the business. So, and, and so we're seeing a lot of growth in social enterprises and they're, they're coming to us and realizing that actually they still need to sell and they still, you know, they still need to drive engagement and, and the principles that we uh, help them to learn apply equally well in that business model. Well, and I'm, I'm intrigued by like the social enterprise piece because when I hear it, it feels like, you know, good lawyers like very much aligned with like the general ethos. You know, we do have a major core principle, you know, we want to improve access to justice. That was the foundational reason I started this from the get go. Um, obviously, we also would like to make money and become a sustainable business. Um, but like for you, what, what makes it like what gets a company over the line from being, you know, a regular enterprise with a little bit, you know, with a little bit of charitable contributions to being a social enterprise? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question. And I'm not an expert yeah, in, no. in social by, by any stretch, but, but I think, you know, I think like a three, two, one is a social enterprise. You know, if, if we just wanted to go make money, we would make very different choices for us. We have, you know, an absolute fierce passion about giving back to our community about, you know, I, I could just go start and I could go in another startup mm -hmm. tomorrow but I really want to do something that has dramatic impact on, you know, on Calgary, on Alberta, on Western Canada, on Canada as a whole. Like how, how do we transform our economy? How do we create an awesome, sustainable economy for the next generation? And I think tech is the answer to that. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's where I want to focus my time. So we do a lot of community initiatives because that's what we believe. It's, it's more than just kind of, that's just our values. That's actually part of why we exist as a company. And so I think with, you know, with a lot of social enterprises, they're, they're fierce moneymakers. Like, you know me, I'm a fierce moneymaker, but, but it's, but the, but the money is, is what drives the mission. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. You know, I, I could go and be a consultant and probably make way more money than I'm making now, but it doesn't fill the other side of what we're trying to accomplish. And so to me, to me, a social enterprise absolutely has to be fierce about growth and sales and profit, because that's what allows them to do the good in the world totally. that they want to do. But, yeah. but I think sometimes social enterprises uh, don't focus on They focus a lot on the social and not enough on the enterprise. So that's I, I was, was doing yeah. some advisory work with a, with a, with a nonprofit, a, a nonprofit society that was down the road of becoming a charitable organization. And, and at the time the executive director said, wow, you are all about the money. And I said, well, I am, because that's how you, that's, that's what's going to fuel the things that you want to do. And if you're not about the money, then you're going to have to become all about the money because you're not going to have any. Yeah. So, and the money drives the impact. The money makes the impact possible. Totally. Yeah. I love that answer. So as you know, we are a uh, legal 
startup. And so I just based off of your experience, whether it be with one of your own companies or with one of the, you know, numerous com- companies that you have helped along the way, just do you see any common legal challenges that uh, companies run into? And, and how do startups in general uh, go about solving that? Do you think they do a good job? Do they need a lot of help? Do they just try and avoid it at all costs? What, uh, what, what's your view of that, uh, that problem? Well, you know, what are the legal challenges? How much time do we have? There's a lot. You know, I, yes. I would say, you know, in general, I think, and again, this is a gross generalization, does not apply to all founders and, and team members. But I would say in general, most, most, you know, first time, second time entrepreneurs, again, they don't know what they don't know. They right. don't know the kind of help, legal help that they need. So they tend to try to cut costs by hiring a generalist, like a Swiss army knife lawyer, or because they don't know what they need, they, you know, they hire an oil and gas lawyer to help them do a SaaS subscription agreement, or they hire their neighbor who's an IP lawyer and get them to help unwind a bad corporate structure, or they hire their M&A lawyer cousin to, you know, help them, you know, on a really difficult, you know, people issue. And then they overspend, they don't get what they need, and then they're in a tough spot. And so that is a pattern that I see a lot. So you don't need, you know, I would advise founders, you don't need to spend five or $10,000 when you incorporate to, right. to get a fancy corporate structure and a, you know, 75 page USA, <laughs> you know, universal shareholders agreement and, you know, and have a, a lawyer on retainer, but you have to understand what are those key things that you have to have in place that makes sense for this stage that you're at. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't overinvest in stuff you don't need, but also don't underinvest. And then I think, you know, on the sales side, like, which is kind of my first love these days is, you know, I think we see a lot of process problems when it comes to contracting. So, you know, I think, I think sometimes uh, people that are, you know, especially if it's an early stage company and the founders are doing the evangelical sales early on to get to the first, you know, five to 10 customers, you know, they're not getting alignment with the buyer on the business terms up front, and then they bring in their lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all that does is triple the cost and reduce the likelihood you're going to get what you want. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's because they're not confident. They're not confident in trying to negotiate, um, you know, but sooner or later they got to, you know, work to get that alignment with the buyer. And then the job of the lawyer is to help you identify and understand the risks, figure mm-hmm. out whether there are some legal mechanisms to manage and mitigate those risks and then get the hell out of your way so you can execute. And I think, you know, sometimes founders feel like, well, my lawyer said I can't do that, or mm-hmm. my lawyer said I need this. And, you know, they really need to think of the lawyer as being an enabler of their business, an enabler of their growth, um, and, and getting, you know, rethinking the, the role of the lawyer in the business. And, and to do that requires that they understand your business, that you've taken the time to brief them on what you're trying to accomplish. So I think well, that kind of not getting that alignment is probably... You know, and, and then thinking that it's going to get resolved in contracting when the lawyers get involved is just such a flawed assumption. That's probably the, one of the number one process challenges I see. Totally. You know, a, a deal dying because, you know, the nitty gritty wasn't actually aligned as between the business, you know, decision makers. Um, but the one comment that I, I just popped in my head as you were talking there was, you know, if you have a good lawyer, one that knows your business or, and like knows that industry and has played in that world before, they can be total enablers of growth and like, you know, do they need to be the ones talking to the other side as like, you know, the f- business foundations are being laid between the two parties? Like, no. Um, but hopefully the, you know, the advice you're getting can extend beyond just like 
you know, here's, here's the services agreement, you know, sign it on the dotted line, you know, lawyers that have played in this space bring a lot of expertise beyond just the legal piece. Cause they've seen these deals before they've been intimately involved in them before. So I think that for a lot of founders, you know, like you said, going to a generalist out of Calgary for a, you know, complicated SAS agreement, like maybe not a good idea because he hasn't, or she hasn't seen that kind of agreement before, but there are lawyers, you know, certainly we like to advocate for the lawyers on our platform. They are tech lawyers. They are experienced in these realms. And when you have someone like that on your side, it makes an immeasurable difference. And I think sometimes it's also about rethinking how you use a lawyer. I think a totally. lot of, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs, like I'm personally, I, you know, Brett, you, you're fantastic. And I know you're a lawyer, but I think a lot of, I think a lot of lawyers would position themselves as general business advisors and probably aren't equipped to do that the same way that I'm not equipped to advise somebody on their legal issues. Totally. But I do think yeah. there is an opportunity to rethink to what you're paying for. I'm not just paying for a contract document. Right. It's more than that. I actually want to know what is the right kind of contract? What are the terms of that contract that I need to be worried about? Are the things I can negotiate on my own and where am I over my pay grade? You mm-hmm. know, how, what, what have they seen is really common? What Recognizing is that-, that they're just a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. You know, that was something that I learned really clearly when I worked in house was like how small a piece of the overall decision the law actually was, you know, from the private practice side, it is the be all end all. But from the in-house side, and that was at a larger organization, it's just a piece of the overall decision. And, you know, I think it's really important that lawyers recognize that so they can provide helpful advice and not just be roadblocks. And I think also for founders to understand that, you know, again, a, a good lawyer, a great lawyer won't see, like, if there's no decision, there's no risk. So some lawyers would say that the safest thing to do is never do anything, but that doesn't allow you to build a business, right? <laughs> a, a really great lawyer is going to help you, is, is not going to try to prevent you from doing the things that you need to do in the business. Mm-hmm. Their job is to help you understand the risk from right. a legal perspective totally. or to understand the operational risk if they've worked with a lot of other companies that have been through this before. Like I've done some very unconventional things with my lawyer, but when I sit with her, she'll say, okay, that's a bit weird, but here's, here's why I think that could work for you. And if you're going to do it that way, here's how I would suggest you structure it. That is highly valuable. And if totally. I had gone to a traditional lawyer, they would have either said, don't do that, or they would have said, here's the 800 page agreement to accomplish that. So right. I think it's kind of about also about thinking about what is the role that you need your lawyer to play. And, you know, when you think about sales, you, you want to get to a contract. So that contract, it, you know, how do you make it low friction? How do you make it simple? You know, yeah. so I, I think that's a common mistake. Totally. You know, I think another really common mistake is founders think that they, can, you know, I'm smart. Like, I don't need a lawyer. I can write that HR agreement. I can write that, Oof. you know, I, I can write this and that. And, and I will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm I can read. I can read, right? I understand what however and that therefore means. I yeah. think, you know, I think that getting a, getting a great lawyer at the right time in the right, like to do the right task for you, you know, you might invest, you know, a few hundred dollars or, you know, a thousand dollars, a few thousand dollars, but if it's material, it will just getting it at the right time will, will be such a value add. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, come into a company, you've got a really thorny HR issue and it wasn't well papered up. And I literally remember this this one, he was a partner in a, in a, I won't mention the name, but he was a partner in a downtown law firm and um, an HR, like labor law. 
and I called him and I explained the situation. Like we're in a, we're in a pickle because, you know, we, we can't afford to pay the guy out, but this person really is not contributing. So how, how would you suggest we handle it? And he, he found, um, you know, kind of a, a different interpretation of what I was reading and, and really allowed us to kind of get off the hook and still, still provide that person with a very reasonable severance mm-hmm. package that was like far beyond what, what we needed to do, but, and, and felt good for both sides. But in that moment, I would have paid him $5,000, you know, right. and he charged, I, I, but I said, I had $250. What can you do? And he's like, well, I can give you 15 minutes. I'm like, I'll take it. And that, <laughs> and that 15 minutes probably saved us $50,000. So wow. getting the right advice in the moment can be so critical, but it's all about knowing what do you need and where do I find it? And how do I, how do I make sure they have all the context to, yeah. so that they are able to give me good advice? Well, I think Carrie, I couldn't, I couldn't have oh, written we're that. We're playing bad, this. Uh, yeah. We're playing this for our lawyers. This, or this is great. Uh, this will just be an advertisement for us. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think, I think you hit on two really important things is, is one, uh, obviously you don't know what you don't know. And that, that is especially true for law. Uh, you, you mentioned writing your own contractor, uh, you know, uh, HR policy or whatever. I am a lawyer and that still terrifies me. So, you know, and I think once you do understand what can go wrong, it gets a little bit sketchy, but And that's part of what good lawyer is trying to do is educate the users, the businesses on what they need. And hey, here's when you may need this. You probably don't need that right now, though. So maybe just focus on these first few things. Worry about that later. Like you said, you don't need a complicated uh, corporate structure when you first start. Just start. And And we can build on this as we go. And the second thing is that lawyers come out of law school and and not just out of law school, but just in general, they haven't fully bought into the customer service aspect of it yet. And I will tell you, I believe in the next five years that that will be one of the defining features that will differentiate the successful lawyers from the ones that are struggling and just grinding it out is the ones who can wrap their head around the fact that this is a service industry and just offering that little extra caring about the company. What are they doing? how, like, what's their story? How can I really, really be of service to them. You know, I think that will really help to differentiate the winners and losers here. Well, and you know, we're selling, we're selling the sessions for 39 bucks, but like the fifth, first 15 minutes is almost in like almost every single time, the most valuable 15 minutes with the lawyer. Yeah, totally. Sometimes they got to do a lot of more time and that and the, the bills go up, you know, to draft things and negotiate things. But like the first 15 is where the biggest value is almost every time. And you know, the one big takeaway that I had from, your, your little rant there was, uh, I loved it. Yeah. Good lawyers, close deals. You know, that's what you want lawyers to help you do is close deals. Uh, you know, understand your risks under them, but ultimately to grow the business, you gotta be closing deals. Yeah. And, and I've also find like when we, you know, a lot of founders will treat their, because they're expensive, they're trying to throttle their access and usage that a lot of founders will treat their legal services as transactional. And I think it's actually really smart to start that way you know, try before you buy, like work with a few different folks and get a sense for, you know, who understands your business. And you probably don't need one kind of lawyer over time. If you're really growing, you might eventually need to tap into an HR labor lawyer. You might eventually need to deal with some corporate, you know, M&A folks, but, Mm -hmm. but in the, you know, in the early days, I think getting, getting a good generalist that has understanding of kind of your kind of tech business or or whatever is your kind of business, I think is really useful. But I I do think that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's for me, for me, and I would advise this for many folks is 
you know, it, I think it's important to build a relationship. So I think Good Lawyer does a really interesting job of trying to do that matchmaking and help people find what they need, find access those specialties uh, and uncover new resources that they may not have been able to identify on their own. But I do think it's important for folks to, you know, if you imagine 10 years from now, five years from now, you want to have a relationship with a lawyer. So they get you, they understand. And then if you have a question, they're not going to charge you. They're just going to answer your question and they'll roll it into the next thing that they do. And so it's kind of this balancing between getting, getting things done in those early days versus later on, how do you build a relationship with one or more lawyers that, that can really contribute, you know, to your business. I like my legal bill annually is very modest, very modest, but I think the value that I get for that is enormous because I have the mm. right person. And, and I know that she knows her boundaries. And if I needed something different, she'd say, wait, that's, that's out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, I totally get what you're saying in terms of, you know, for a business that's growing, having, you know, that trusted legal advisor that you have a relationship with, you have that rapport with is, is critical. You'll be happy to hear that that's coming soon. But you also do need, you know, some of that extra expertise from time to time where, you know, your go-to lawyer, it's not in their wheelhouse. So, um, you know, that is the, the world that we're trying to create. You know, you've, you've, been, you've been through a lot of startups and you've been around, the, you know, dealt with a lot of deals, have dealt with a lot of lawyers, I'm sure. So, you know, you found that, that pink unicorn, as we like to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're trying to make that pink unicorn a little more accessible to, to everybody else. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for founders, it's, it's really about, you know, how do we enable and support them so that they can really focus on what they're best at, um, which should be growing their business. Uh, and then, and then the, you know, their legal support is a, you know, it is a support. It's, it's, it's not an obstacle. It, it shouldn't be egregiously expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't be hard to access, you know, and, and, it, but it is often necessary, like, you know, getting, getting good advice at the right time. Is important. Well, you know, this takes you back to my three, two, one days too. Is it a pill or is it a drug or is it a vitamin? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. So, uh, Carrie, we do, uh, want to be respectful of your time. We know you are a, uh, obviously having just heard your story, a very busy person, which is excellent. <laughs> and I really appreciate this chat, but before we let you go, uh, we do just want to ask you if you do have any favorite resources, uh, that have helped you along your journey that you believe would help others along theirs, whether that be business or otherwise we'd, uh, yeah. So many, <laughs> I don't sleep a lot. So I like to read a lot. Um, I don't have anything specifically around kind of legal services and contracting, but you know, for sales, my favorite sales blog is uh, Steli, who's one of the co-founders of Close.com. It's a it's a sales stack tool. It's not one actually that I use. We use HubSpot at three two one, but but they they have tremendous content and it's uh, incredibly helpful. So anybody that's not following Steli on Close is uh, is is making a an error. Um, I also really like Sales Hacker. They've got some great content. And the HubSpot blog. Those mm-hmm. would probably be my top three. Um, awesome. On the marketing side, I've just discovered a whole bunch of new ones. But, you know, I think on the marketing side, would really, um, would really recommend um, April Dunford's book, Obviously Awesome, that talks about positioning. We I saw again, her speak, actually, in Montreal a couple of summers ago. She's excellent. I, and I love that book, by the way. Yeah, sorry, continue. No, that's all right. So because I started, like, I actually started into tech um, as a product manager and then went into marketing. 
So as a product manager, I spent a lot of my time on positioning and, mm-hmm. and that was so helpful when I went into marketing and then when I went into sales. So I think positioning doesn't get its due attention. So I would really recommend picking that up. I, lo- you know, I kind of, um, I fall in and out of love a little bit with Seth Godin, but he's got some bite-sized <laughs> daily blogs that I love. Some of them I find it's just like, it's, you know, how could he possibly have known I needed to see exactly that message today? And so for that reason alone, he's probably worth subscribing to. Um, and again, I think the HubSpot blog has a lot of, like, it, it's just voluminous. It has an incredible amounts of content. And of course, you know, we hope that you would follow 321. We, you know, we read a lot. We share a lot of our gems um, that we love on our 321 social channels. So hopefully mm-hmm. you will, uh, you'll hang out with us there. Excellent. That's fantastic. Everyone should follow Carrie on Twitter. Yeah, I, I, that's so where, uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, the best place is to go to our website, 321growthacademy.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at 321growth or at Carrie L. Houston, I think. Um, but you, you'll, you'll find us. And we'll find you, um, yeah. yeah, look forward to uh, look forward to seeing you there. Excellent. Well, we'll obviously throw all those in the show notes so everyone can have an easy time finding you. I uh, just wanted to thank you once again for coming on. That was fantastic. Such a pleasure, uh, Carrie. Yeah, just such thank great advice. And, and if any uh, people out there are looking for uh, looking for ways to scale their company or get some advice, I think you know where to go look. So thank if you. If you want to sell more, talk to Carrie Houston. That's really thank good. you so much. <laughs> awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day. Uh, just stay on the line here. We'll say a proper goodbye. And uh, But thanks once again. Thanks so much, guys, for having us. Thanks again to Carrie for being on the show. And again, if you have a company that is looking to grow, you have to check out 321 Growth Academy. Trust me, you won't regret it. If you like what you heard on the show today, please rate, download, and subscribe. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.